Those of you who, who know my family, my firstborn son, my second child is in optometry school at the Illinois College of Optometry in Chicago. It's in the Bridgeport section of, they live in Bridgeport, but in Bronzeville is where the school is. And you know, that's a transitional neighborhood, you know, just a couple, all the violence you hear about Chicago is about five blocks south of where Zach and Mary live. They're safe, they're wise, they're shrewd, but uh, you just, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an exciting place to be if you're a young person. Bridgeport is really very cool, it's very artsy, and it's a wonderful place, and I'm glad for them if they've had their first couple years of marriage to be walking this journey. And so one of the great things about being a third year optometry student is he gets to see patients all on his own. And they don't know necessarily how inexperienced he is. <laughs> But, uh, you know, you just act the part and it kind of goes along with the territory. But this summer, there was a most touching case that he had to deal with. A five-year-old boy came in, and as he is now called doctor, is able to walk into the office, and this little boy is just weeping. Now, you got to understand something about this optometry clinic in Chicago. These are utterly poor people. They have no means in which to pay and no means to get the glasses, many times very specialized glasses. And this little boy had been diagnosed with degenerative myopia, which down the road could possibly blind him, okay? And so we, Zach had no idea what this boy had heard when he walked into the office. So he walks in and the little boy is just crying uncontrollably. So, uh, you know, he just prayed, Lord, help me to, to help this little guy. So he sat down and said, what's on your mind, buddy? And he said, Dr. Sherman, am I going blind? You can imagine what went through Zach's mind. The first time he'd ever heard a patient, much less a five-year-old, say such words like this. And so for the next 15, 20 minutes, he said, buddy, we're going to fight this as best as we can. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you will see for the, all your life. Is that a deal? And the kid just smiled and said, that's a deal. In a similar way, what Paul is doing for this Roman church is helping them to have such clarity about who Jesus truly is. Because remember where this church is and the time which it exists. This letter was written in 60 AD-ish from Corinth. Paul hadn't been to Rome yet, but the word about this church was spreading. Why? Because it's a mixed bag of both Jews and Gentile believers in Jesus. And the Romans looked at them and said, what? Really? Because the, the Roman and Jewish divide was tremendously huge. They wouldn't talk to one another up to this point. But obviously some Jews had come back from Pentecost and had shared the good news with their fellow Jews. And some of them had come to faith in Jesus. Some of the Roman soldiers throughout the empire had come back to Rome, had heard the gospel. And you went to church and next thing you know, you're sitting next to a non-pork eating Jew and you just love barbecue. <laughs> You got nothing in common with these people. You're saying, hey, let's have a feast. We're going to have crabs. And they're saying, no way. 
It's a real, but they have everything in common because they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so Paul wanted to make sure that they have it right. So he writes this letter. This letter was written on Paul's third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 20. And it's the most powerful and influential book I would propose to you other than the Gospels themselves. St. Augustine, that most brilliant theologian in the early church, came to conviction of sin and salvation after reading some chap verses out of chapter 13. Martin Luther rediscovered the great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone as he prepared to teach seminarians in Wittenberg. John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed as he studied Roman in the Aldersgate section of London, which led to the first Great Awakening in England and spread to America from Aldersgate, England. John Bunyan, studying Romans as he was in jail, wrote the incomparable Pilgrim's Progress. And so today, today, congregation after congregation who spend some time in Romans will find themselves renewed, revitalized, and reformed as they're in the book of Romans. There's power in this book. So what I've decided, rather than take 16 chapters over the next 12 years, <laughs> it took Martin Lloyd-Jones 12 years to get through the book of Romans. 12 years. I'm not doing that. We're going to take two chapters a year. As long as God gives me breath among you, we're just going to dabble in it, go in and out, each and every year. So for 2016, we're going to take chapters 1 and 2, and we've entitled this series Concerning Jesus, because that's exactly what Paul wrote as Bob read it to us, and we're going to see what great gospel and doctrinal clarity it will bring us. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you can find it in the very back of your bulletin. For what we're going to see in this clear view that Paul gives us is a clear view of his identity, a clear view of his preaching, a clear view of his ministry, and a clear view of the Romans and us. All right? Four points that Paul gives. Clear view of his identity, clear view of his preaching, clear view of his ministry, and clear view of the Roman church, and therefore us. Let's look at Paul's identity first, which is crystal clear. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You know, of all the things Paul could have said to himself, he could have said, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a doctor of ministry, a great Old Testament scholar, missionary to the Gentiles, a master of the scriptures. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? A servant. The Greek word is doulos. We would understand that as slave. But I don't use that word slave because what do we think of? The American slave trade, which was wicked and wrong. This is indentured servanthood in the ancient world. And just like some of you have really good bosses and some of you have really bad bosses, back then, there were good masters and there were bad masters. And it was a way for a person of, of common means to provide for his family. If you got a job in the household of a good master, you know, you agreed to work for him for seven years. You had your ear pierced with his insignia, and he owned you. But you had three square meals a day, you had good honest work, your family was taken care of, and it wasn't a bad deal in most cases. Some cases there was, obviously. 
And so he knew that both the Jewish and the Gentile readers would look at this in very similar ways, but the Jewish reader viewed it as a title of great honor because it's attached to God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And Paul did this often in other letters, and he views himself as a servant. No matter whether you're a bishop, a priest, a deacon, an office worker, a teacher, a full-time mom, whatever it is to be productive in life and ministry, we must be servants, dear friends. Jesus said in the melodic line of Mark as we went through it, you guys remember that? Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So it's an important thing for us to always remember that service, even among us to one another, is vital for not only our health as Christians, but as health as a witness to this community. Did you know that eight to 10,000 American churches close each year? They're closing. And throughout the West, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's sad. Some of them should close because they don't preach the true gospel. But there are those who hold good doctrine, but because they become not servant-oriented, <laughs> more the church is there to serve me, right? Across the board, churches like that, even in America, are closing. Tom Rainer's book, the, the Autopsy of a Deceased Church, I encourage you to pick it up. It's a cheap read. It keeps us away from such. And this gospel reminding ourselves that we are servants are critical to make sure that we don't become such a non-servant church, but a serving church to one another and to our neighbors. Paul also calls himself an apostle. Did you catch that? That means he's one of the original called out of God, just like, you know, Matthew, John. He's on that same plane, and he's called by God. It's not a self-appointment. God had chosen him for this task, and Paul would need to remind himself of that because when life got rough, he could remember that it was God who called him, and he was simply being faithful to that call above every other task that he was called to. And this calling was so that he would be set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart in the Greek has the same root as Pharisee. A Pharisee would set himself apart for the study of the law. And God had set Paul apart for the gospel because this gospel was not turned inward. It was turned outward so he could uniquely preach it, proclaim it, declare it to the Gentiles. This is the answer Paul would have given had you asked him, Who are you, Paul? I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Because when ministry and life hits the fan as it did and does today for us, right? Paul and we are sustained by the call of God on our lives as we too are set apart as indentured servants. That's the first point. Second point, well, what about his preaching? Verses 2 through 4, which he promised, the gospel, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul's ministry priorities was not to have some theological novelty. It was pretty simple, and it's not sexy. 
It's the gospel. And it's the gospel at that time that was in the Old Testament. All right, because Paul longed to proclaim that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Because the Old Testament speaks all about Jesus. We've said it often, right? But it's so true. The Messiah, who was he to be? Fulfilled in Jesus throughout all the Old Testament. Who would Jesus' mother be? A virgin, as declared in the Old Testament. Of what house would he come from? Of King David, as we heard read in 2 Samuel this morning. Where would he be born? In Bethlehem. What name would be given him? Emmanuel, God with us. How would he die upon a cross, piercing his body without breaking his bones? Where would he die? Jerusalem outside the gates. And Paul's task was to grant clarity to the reader that all the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. And he was both, verse 3, truly human. Jesus was a man, not God acting as a man, as was going around the early church. And yet he was also fully God, for only God could rise from the dead. And that was substantiated by the phrase, the spirit of holiness, that is, the holiness of his human nature by the resurrection from the dead. Kent Hughes states it this way, the sonship which was declared by the resurrection corresponded to the spirit of holiness, which was the deepest reality in the person and life of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, perfectly holy, raised from the dead, and that resurrection verified with power that Jesus' perfect life came from his divinity. And so Paul wanted the Romans to know this. How was he going to do that? By declaring it, by preaching it. Because it has to be spoken in order for people to know. And his task of sharing the good news was to preach Jesus in accord with the ancient scriptures that Jesus was the resurrected human divine Savior. So it is here that Paul's identity and his task come together. The servant of Jesus as an apostle set apart for the gospel and this message of the risen Lord, both human and fully divine. See, it's not what so many think it is today. You know, it's 10 steps to financial success in the kingdom or how to raise a successful family or how to live a happy life of singleness or how to be, have, a, have a wonderful marriage. Oh, those things are important. And we learn those things from the scriptures, but that's not the main message of the scripture, is it? Jesus is risen. That's why we're obnoxious with it every Easter Sunday, right? Yeah. And we just scream from the rooftops, hallelujah, Christ is risen. And people go, right? People don't want to hear it. But God, as we proclaim it, will open the ears that are stopped as we proclaim it through our word and our deed. So there's his ministry, there's his preaching task, but what about his ministry? Verse 5, see, it's all a matter of grace, says Paul, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Grace is the widest sense of God's favor to you and to me. It's, yes, our salvation, but it also with our salvation comes guidance, illumination, wisdom, and the power to serve others. We see this view of grace throughout Romans, and Paul never ceases to be amazed by it. Romans 5.20, he says, Where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. Because grace is infinite, it's eternal, it has no beginning and no end, because it's a mystery, because it all comes from God. If you think you understand God's love and grace, you probably are without it. <laughs> okay? It's a mystery. That's why Newton wrote, oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you looked at Mr. Newton, you would have said, oh, what a, what a great servant, what a great preacher. Oh, you didn't know him. And that's our story, many of us, right? When you truly know who you are in Christ, it's beautiful to see the transforming power of God. So Paul views his apostleship and ministry to the Gentiles as an overflow of God's mysterious grace to him. And therefore, he proclaims it. And this is what it's all about. He's a servant, God appointed, set apart because of the resurrection. It's incomprehensible grace. And this makes all the difference, does it not? 2,000 years later, it's doing the same work in us. How different would our lives be if we saw ourselves as Paul viewed himself, as God owned, declaring the resurrection in word and deed to our neighbors, all as a matter of grace. That's obedience. That's what Paul is talking about. Because when we get that, our affections change. We all of a sudden want to walk with the Lord. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but the desire's there, and that obedience comes from faith. And so Paul concludes his introduction with how the reader should then regard themselves and how we at Christ Church ought to regard ourselves as well. So he turns and he says in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In that closing of his introduction, there are three applications that we can all walk away from today. So if you're taking notes, write these down. These are crucial for each and every one of us. The first is, we are loved by God. Did you catch that? To all those in Rome who are loved by God, number one, you are God's beloved child. Do you understand that? When you place your trust in Jesus Christ and understand that he loved you in the way that you couldn't love God, he loved for you. He was obedient where you couldn't be and died upon the cross that you couldn't die. Did you get that out of your head and down to your heart and to your soul? <laughs> you see, you need to get used to it, that you're loved by God, but never get over it. Mm -hmm. Let me repeat that. Get used to it. You're loved by God, but never get over it. Because he loves you so much and calls you his child. And because you're his child, it's like your children used to do to you. You, can, you are the child of the king, and only the king's son can walk in at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water. You have that relationship with God because he loves you. Don't ever forget that. Two, we're called to be saints. Now, this is funny, right? We're, we're not called because we are saints. We're saints because we're called. <laughs> all right? And we're in continuity with the saints of all the centuries and with one another. And we can properly call one another Saint Bob and Lucy. All right? It's a proper title. 
You know, the church, I think, got it a little askew. Now, there are extraordinary saints, right? There are extraordinary people. I mean, Mother Teresa was amazing, who sold out for the Lord and, and gave her life, and it's just amazing. And, and I, I wouldn't begrudge her being declared a saint by the Roman church. But it misses the point. <laughs> when you place your trust in Christ, you are looked at as a saint. And we're called to be so. And third, we are recipients of both grace and peace. See, it combines the Greek and Jewish greetings that they would give one another as they greeted people in letters in order to reinforce the beautiful cause and effect to all those who place their trust in Jesus' work for them. Grace comes upon us and takes away our sin, and we become objects of his favor. And when you come to that realization, you have a peace, right? That's when it, the coin drops and it goes from your head to your heart. And Paul wants that for the Romans and he wants that for us. All Zach was trying to do in that little appointment was get that little boy to realize they're going to do everything they can to make him see. And you know what? They did. Is, uh, God forbid, I don't know how much that cost the clinic for these specialized glasses, but a few weeks later, the kid came back, put these glasses on, and the smile was from ear to ear. He can see. So can we. Amen? Amen. God loves you. We're called to be saints. May we know the peace that surpasses understanding because of his love for each and every one of us, which we can never earn, but he gives it to you free gift. Let's pray. Lord, may we have this perception of great love, great peace, and great joy because of what Paul has told the Romans this morning. And Lord, whether we climb to his level or not, because we're not all called to be Paul's, but Lord, may we get a clearer view of your love and your grace for us that we may minister powerfully for our young people who go back into a world which is so uh, against much of what this message stands for. May you surround them with godly friends, friends who want to labor in this way with, with them. May our young people know they're loved and, and rest in that grace. May we as adults do the same as we go back to our work tomorrow. And may our retired friends know that their, their life isn't over and their life is not wasted. Their life is useful right now because of this grace and peace that you've given them. Lord, may we have that clear view that all ages can embrace. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.